Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to How Should I Be Positioned on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. On this podcast, we do like to discuss how you should consider asset allocation within your investment portfolio against the current market and macro backdrop, along with how conditions might evolve from here. Joining me here today in studio for the conversation, glad to welcome back from First Eagle Investment Management, Matt McLennan. Matt serves as the co-head of the Global Value Team and portfolio manager for the firm. I am also glad to be joined from the UBS Chief Investment Office by Jason Dreho, the Head of Asset Allocation for the Americas. Jason, Matt, it's great to be with you both here in person. I know a lot has taken place since we all last spoke together, so looking forward to catching up and hearing your thoughts on the current market environment. Thanks uh, for being here, Matt. I know we were discussing uh, this is the first in-person one we've done in three years, so nice uh, milestone. Thank no, you. It's, it's great to be back in person. So, Matt, as I alluded to, a lot, of course, has changed since we last spoke, though just thinking about the last two months here in 2023, a lot has taken place. So I'm curious if the market activity we've witnessed recently, has that had any influence or change on your investment outlook heading into the year? Well, I think one of the things that... Um market participants have been dealing with uh, over the last 12 months is this shift from what was a generational low in the cost of capital in 2021 to a much more normal cost of capital. Uh, you know, I think there was a, a failed policy experiment uh, with average inflation rate targeting. And I, I guess the delayed easing in policy uh, alongside uh, cumulative fiscal stimulus led to uh, quite an inflationary pulse in the economy. And we've been having to sort of deal with that. I think the market's had some distress over the summer of last year as they were digesting this news and certain sub-segments of the market were very weak. And I think what we saw uh, in the first uh, period of this year is almost a, a, a reversion to normal valuations in markets. Uh, in credit markets, we saw spreads go from in the high yield space 600 over to 400 over. Uh, we saw earnings multiples on the S&P 500 get back to 20 times trailing peak earnings. And, uh, you know, we saw long-dated inflation expectations in the bond market uh, get back to sort of more normal 2.5% type levels in the five-year forwards. And, um, you know, we saw things like implied volatility drop. We saw trading breadth broaden. My concern a little, though, is that um, this return to more normal valuations uh, could mark a moment of complacency uh, in markets. And we've sort of sensed that a little bit in the last couple of weeks where um, the market's starting to to grapple with the fact that, uh, fact that we're uh, at a little bit of a, a challenging fork in the road where um, good news can be bad news or bad news can be bad news. And what I mean by that is that we came into this period with a lot of economic momentum um, and you know the Fed had essentially let wage growth overshoot, uh, and that's feeding through to nominal demand growth, uh, consumer credit growth, and we've seen a fair amount of corporate pricing power. And so when you see things like the ISM services survey strong or uh, when the JOLT survey rebounded, um, the market starts to worry about inflation uh, again. And we've seen um, one-year inflation swaps uh, since mid-January go from 2% up to 3%. Uh, and, and that's led to a sort of a, a bit of softening of, of, of asset markets. But this, the second thing is that what we don't know is um, the deferred effect of the uh, generational shift in policy um, uh, on the actual economy. It's almost like the snake has swallowed the poison egg. Uh, we can see it there behind the jaws of the snake. It just hasn't been ingested yet. And so what we don't know is whether we're going to see a slowing of nominal growth at a time of wage inflation 
such that we get a margin squeeze in a more traditional layoff and recessionary cycle. The problem with these two scenarios is that if, if we keep getting economic momentum, multiples are at risk through tighter financial conditions. If the delayed effects of policy tightening take a while to kick in here, um, then we get a more traditional recessionary cycle, and markets aren't necessarily priced for that. Uh, and, and so we're, we're in this kind of uh, in-between space right now is the way I would refer to it. Thank you, Matt. There's a lot there that we look forward to diving into further here on the podcast today, though. Jason, to get your thoughts from the vantage point of the Chief Investment Office, how, if at all, has your investment thesis changed over the course of the first two months? Well, so a lot of great points, and I'm going to want to follow up some questions for you on that. You know, the consensus view, I think, coming into the year among investors was a difficult first half with growth and better second half. It's turned out the growth of the first half, at least the first month, is, is better than expected. So I think that's kind of shifting the markets. Uh, I think even for us, I think the timing of like if there's a recession slowdown, it's sort of been pushed further. So that, mm-hmm. that's one thing that two months I think we can – I think as, you know, I think most people would agree with. Uh, I think it kind of ties into uh, to some of your comments of when you look at sort of landscape of outcomes, mm-hmm. it's pretty wide right now. Uh, you know, Dan and I have done podcasts where like I've used the term like – uh, flatter and fatter for like the distribution of outcomes, like a flatter distribution, fatter tails. Mm-hmm. And then even tying into like the whole soft landing, no landing, hard landing scenario. Like if you're up in a plane, you're kind of looking at the horizon. The horizon looks pretty flat and it looks, you can go in a lot of different directions. So I think that's kind of, that's if the U.S. economy is that airplane in this analogy, then I think where we can go, mm-hmm. depending on the turbulence we get with the data, it takes us down, you know, different paths. And this third thing I'd sort of touch on is, you know, last year was an environment where like inflation was too high, the labor market was too hot. Um, arguably, it still is, but it was an environment where, therefore, the Fed has to raise rates to cool the economy to kind of bring things down. In simple terms, if the Fed says we need to tighten financial conditions, that's not a great environment for risk assets, and we saw that last year. The start of this year looked like that regime was over, and, and back on what February 1st, Jay Powell gives a press conference and sort of says, eh, I'm kind of not too worried about financial conditions easing. It's like that's kind of how the market's traded. The market's already kind of preemptively said, the Fed, you got to do more. The question is how much more. I think that's to be determined, like, what does the Fed have to do? So do we go back to that regime of last year? Is it the January regime or is it something else? I think those are things that are kind of all kind of on, on the table. But I think central to all this, this is a kind of a follow-up question to you, is something I think we debate, economists debate, is when is the impact of all this Fed tightening really hit the economy? Because the conventional wisdom coming into this, like the long and variable lags, sit, you know, nine to 12 months, we are a few weeks away from the Fed's first rate hike, so we're just kind of at the 12-month mark. Policy by different measures just got restrictive, maybe in the last year. depends on how you want to define it. So there's a school of thought. It's, it's only going to start to kind of hit later this year. There's another school of thought that's emerged really this cycle of like, well, financial conditions tightened already. The negative impact is kind of hitting us now. As stocks have rallied this year from their lows, it's easing, and therefore it's actually going to get without the Fed doing a whole lot more, get kind of easier. So the impact is, has happened. So the Fed has to do maybe a lot more. How do you think about like the impact of monetary policy? And if, is it hitting now? Is it still to, to hit? And how does that kind of inform your overall outlook? That's a, a, a great um, series of observations and, and, and a challenging question. Uh, yeah, I, I would just say that if we zoom out from just the interest rate increase, um, there's two other forms of policy tightening that are playing out here that are quite unusual uh, by reference to history. The first is that we've seen money supply shrink uh, over the last 12 months, if you measure it by M2. Uh, we haven't seen that in the post-World War II period. And so, you know, if, if you think about the period of time leading into the end of 2021, we'd seen the Federal Reserve expand money supply by over 30%, and uh, we had an abundant liquidity environment. All sorts of risk assets did well. 
um, that's now reversing. And I, I think there's an unknown impact of, of that on um, liquidity conditions over the medium term, the banking sector, um, private markets, etc. And so we're just going to have to wait to see the effect of that. The second thing that's happened is that the budget deficit went from a double-digit percentage of GDP to you know, 5 to 6% of GDP. And um, it's by no means a tight fiscal backdrop in the sense that uh, we, we have a generationally low level of unemployment. A lot, you know, when we were uh, at these sub four percent levels of unemployment in the late 1990s, we saw a budget surplus. But still, the fiscal pulse was highly negative last year, and there's not a, a lot of room for easy fiscal policy going forward. So I I, I feel that uh, policies tightened um, in, in a range of different uh, areas. And, and secondly, on the interest rate front. Um, I would say one of the things that worries me is that we had a 40-year downtrend in the level of peak-to-peak interest rates in the economy. So what was happening from the 80s into the 90s and the 2000s is that we were, the level of debt-to-GDP was building in the economy. And each successive cycle, um, the choke point for the economy happened at a lower level of interest rates. Um, this time, what we've seen is interest rates have broken out on the upside relative to that 40-year downtrend, and we have higher levels of debt, particularly in the sovereign sector around the world. And so uh, I think the Fed made a mistake with average inflation rate targeting, and it may be risking a financial accident at some point. Um, and so we, we um, maintain a sort of open-mindedness uh, to that uh, possibility. The, the one thing I would say is that the markets are uh, – sort of waiting for, well, what's it going to be like when we're on the other side of this inflationary period? Um, do things get more constructive? I think what market participants um, may have forgotten a little bit in the early parts of this year was that what is it that usually gets the Fed uh, into easing mode? It's it's usually not great news, right? It's usually uh, not positive payrolls, but negative payrolls. Um, and um, I guess the history of labor market adjustments uh, is pretty nonlinear. Uh, in the sense that, you know, if I look at the Bloomberg consensus forecast now, they're calling for uh, unemployment rates to drift up about a percent higher as the Fed slows the economy. Uh, and back to your question of soft landing, hard landing, that's just not how, how history's played out. You know, since World War II, every time the unemployment rate's gone up by 50 basis points, it's ended up spiking higher by several hundred basis points. So it sets off and process a kind of systemic confidence crisis. Um, and so, you know, I worry a little bit that because the policy tightening has been so multidimensional, uh, because we've broken out on the upside in interest rates after a 40-year downtrend, and because of the history of nonlinear unemployment adjustments, that it may not be as smooth sailing as the markets are hoping for here. So those are all valid, great points. I guess one thing that we think about a lot is, you know, this time is different. You never, like Those are always dangerous words in finance and economics. Yet it's clearly like, this cycle is unique and that it's pandemic-induced. So there's no nothing in the past 40 years yeah. that kind of is, is the right parallel. So when we look at – and I think this is part of the reasons why you know economists at different points in time have, like, are still very pessimistic. It's mm -hmm. the most forecasted recession ever. So if you want to say economists are wrong, you probably say that we actually won't get a recession. Um, I love that point, by the way. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, but then it, like – you know, people, again, the consensus was the economy is slow. And then the data we're getting this year, is that's not the case. And so there's a little bit of like, you know, some of it is the data is noisy because of a post-pandemic kind of distortion. There's seasonal adjustments that are being, again, sort of altered by the pandemic. So when we look at all this. You want to rely on historical data. You want to be disciplined. You have models at the same time, you know, models garbage in, garbage out to some extent. Or the models were calibrated to an economic environment that weren't applicable going forward. And you gave the example of, 
you know, interest rates, the 10 year treasury or the policy rate, it was on a 40 year secular decline. And it was every cycle was like, you know, lower highs, lower lows. We've actually changed that in this one. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it kind of raises the question, have we kind of broken out of that? Is there structural changes that, you know, would sort of mean that when we think about it, we have to not have a failure of our imagination and say, look, this, this is historically the pattern. Like the, the labor market's a perfect example of people, prominent people saying like, you can't get inflation down without the employment rate going up significantly. Yet if we sat here this time last year and said like, what do you need to play out in the labor market to get the soft landing? It's, well, you want still, you know, job growth, but wages have come down and they they have come down from their peak. So it's sort of played out where kind of going the fork in the road, like we could still go down the softer, hard landing path. So as you think about these things, like what would you have, say, what's you rely on or think is still applicable for the cycle mm-hmm. and what parts you like, you know, M2, is it still an appropriate way to think about things in a world where, like, it's all kind of credit as opposed to money supply? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, very thought-provoking. Um, I, I would say that to the extent that this cycle is different because of the, the pandemic impacts, one variable that we're keeping a close eye on um, that could provide a path to a softer landing is the labor participation rate. Um, we've seen that tick up a little bit from the pandemic lows. And if labor participation rates improved to where they were before the pandemic, that would provide for some flex, as you mentioned, in um, uh, wage inflation and the like. And we do worry. Uh, I like to look at the uh, Atlanta Fed wage tracker. It's still you know, growing at about 6%. So it's still well above the nominal growth target that the Fed would have for the economy as a whole. So if we saw good news on the labor participation rate, that would be a real positive. The question mark there, though, is that um, the labor participation rate's been in a 20-year downtrend since the year 2000, uh, and um, the, the reason for that is essentially the aging uh, demographic. But then there's a whole host of other things that have been going on, um, um, drug dependency issues uh, that we've sort of read about in the media, uh, and some of the work habit changes in response to the pandemic. And so uh, it's, it's kind of an unknowable as to whether these higher wages will attract more people back to the workforce um, against the backdrop of an aging uh, demographic. But I think from a structural standpoint, what we, uh, what we worry about um, is that we don't see the productivity story uh, in the economy um, the way it may have been, say, back in the 90s or, or whatnot. Um, for one, as I've mentioned, we have this aging demographic, uh, which is a headwind uh, to, pro- uh, to workforce growth and productivity growth. Um, the second thing is that the energy transition that everyone's focused on is going to be very costly uh, for the economy. Um, geopolitical dynamic is is pretty fraught now. I don't need to sort of repeat all of that, but I think um, to the extent that we start to see supply chains redomicile, that's going to be a headwind to productivity growth for a period of time. And and I, I mentioned before corporate pricing power. Uh, I think there's a kind of um, a, a populist response to that. So around the world, we're seeing more anti-business uh, regulation growth. And so um, one thing I worry about a little bit is that we, we have this sort of series of productivity question marks, um, almost akin to what we saw in the 1970s. Um, and I, I think the, the difference from the 1970s, um, and, and the 1970s, by the way, is a cautionary tale because uh, there was a sort of a decade repricing uh, of assets on the downside, um, and, and inflation expectations changed slowly. But I think the things that are different from that are that um, we have, as I mentioned before, a little bit more corporate pricing power, which is making things arguably more inflationary in the upcycle. But we also have a lot more debt in the system, which makes things more deflationary in the down cycle. So 
Um, maybe the thing that's changing here structurally is that we have more inflation volatility uh, as opposed to um, you know having a directional view on inflation. Um, I guess that, that gels with your uh, analogy of the, the wide horizon, the fatter tails, and the, and the lower peaks. Uh, I think if that's the case, uh, risk premium may need to be a little bit higher in uh, risk assets in the term structure, et cetera. Um, and, and I don't know that markets have fully digested that kind of supply-side uh, problematic story. Yeah, I would call it the inflation volatility turbulence and the, uh, the whole soft landing scenario um, or, yeah. or those ideas. The um, I, I want to kind of pick up on the point on, on productivity. I think it actually segues, I think, to some extent on the, the equity outlook and the, the interest rate outlook as well because I, I – you know, whatever you think you say is all valid. The problem with the challenge with productivity is like it's almost impossible to forecast with any sort of conviction. Uh, I've written some stuff over the past year or so, kind of making the case that there is a bull scenario, like that. Like there's always a bull case scenario on this, but that you know, especially when you look at the hiking cycle last year, the last time the Fed moved that aggressively wasn't just the early '80s, but 1994 when they did a bunch of hikes. They paused after about a year, and then we had the second half of the '90s that ended up being a really good environment. It's a great environment, and, and so I kind of wonder. Think about like sort of some stuff that's going on in the economy right now. Like we know after the financial crisis, there was a lack of a corporate investment and, and public investment as well. So it's been 15 years since there's been a real capex investment cycle. The data we're seeing is companies, you know, look like they're like we're investing. We we have to do energy transition. We have to do reshoring. So you're seeing some of that now. Whether it's just inefficient capital allocation to deal with these things, or actually productivity enhancing, that's an open question. I'm sure I've had debates and discussions. I'm sure you had as well. It's like is Chat GTP like a Big deal, little deal, no deal. I kind of equated like seems like a '94 Netscape Navigator came out and like suddenly transformed the ability to access the internet. Again, using the analogy, is this setting up a segue where productivity will be unleashed? Um, so I'm a little maybe I'm looking at the rose-colored glasses that I wear sometimes on this, but I feel a little like there's a scenario there that kind of gets downplayed. Now, as you kind of look at the data, but also maybe look at individual companies, is there reason to think like? You will see investment. We know when there's more capital investment, it tends to enhance labor productivity later on. Because to me, that's the key to the whole story, at least not for the next six months, but for the next five years. If you get it, then inflation comes down, rates can come down, and you can have growth and earnings. And it's you know, it's like the panacea for everything. But you know, trying to make that investment decision, that that's the challenge, right? Well, I think what we've seen in in markets like the United States is there's been a um, a mixed shift away from tangible capital investment to uh, intangible. Uh, investment and so, um, you know, this is an economy that where there's been sort of more, I, I would argue, investment in process know-how, um, whether it's SG&A or R&D or advertising, and um, you know the capital deepening that we saw over the last couple of decades that one would typically associate with productivity growth has been uh, in the emerging market space, uh, and I would argue um, uh, to a certain extent, particularly in China, we saw. So much capital deepening that there was arguably malinvestment um, that was going on in that economy, and we've seen that with the uh, real estate uh, troubles that they've had. Um, I, I can see a scenario where companies do need to invest in more tangible equipment. Um, uh, I, I think the supply chain issues that we saw over the last couple of years have made companies think about their just-in-time uh, working capital uh, programs, and you know maybe they're going to carry a little bit more working capital than they have historically. That's not necessarily a good thing for productivity, but I can see that. Um, I also think uh, that uh, selectively there'll be investments in factory automation, and you know one of the 
uh, key areas where we've invested in internationally is in some of the leaders in the factory automation space. Uh, I think if there is going to be a, an, an investment in manufacturing capacity, it's not going to be the manufacturing capacity that we thought of in the 1950s and 60s with the assembly lines and lots of people. It's going to be robots, making robots, basically. And I, I think that's a different kind of uh, in investment. So I can see some of that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess, though, what I keep coming back to in my mind um, is the fact that, uh, you know, when, when some of the one of our advisors, Bruce Greenwald, who headed the uh, Value School of Investing at Columbia University, said that one of the best indicators of productivity was uh, the rate of growth in the Federal Register. A and it's an inverse relationship, as you can imagine. And so um, what we're seeing is not just in the U.S., but around the world, a, a, a fair amount of growth in regulatory complexity uh, and, and sort of anti-business sentiment. I think just looking at that from a big picture standpoint, it's hard for me to feel as positive as, say, back in the 1990s when um, things were uh, things were uh, moving to a more sort of centrist policy backdrop around the world. The Washington consensus was in place in the emerging markets. Um, it was a kind of a you know, it was after the fall of the Berlin Wall, so there was a, a window of uh, geopolitical détente, uh, if you will, and it just feels like the forces at work are quite different right now, um, but. You know, I've been in this business long enough to uh, to know that the crystal ball is foggy at best, and and so, you know, we're and we're humble enough at First Eagle to not um, bet it all on black or red. Uh, you know, we we um, we acknowledge that the ability to sort of call these things, to your point, is 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 quite challenging. Um, but at least you you know where some of our worries are. Yeah. Well, that's actually a good segue to think like. You know the crystal ball maybe maybe a little bit clear or not for the next six months or the rest of this year, but it does tie in with you know the productivity discussion. You know, and labor enhancing kind of ties in a lot with the outlook for equities this year because last year was a story with a multiple compressed. This year's a story, maybe more like about the earnings and earnings yeah. come down. There's a lot of debate how much earnings could decline. Like if you were to suddenly snap your fingers and get fast productivity, then you know you can get earnings hold up, wage growth stays good, inflation comes down. I think that's a little optimistic. But then just thinking more like kind of a nuts and bolts of when you look at the earnings outlook for this year, where would you say in terms of for the broad S&P, kind of, you know, what's the overall kind of thought of how this could play out? Well, I guess consensus expectations have the earnings up again uh, year over year, um, despite all of the, the policy headwinds that we spoke about. When we look at what sort of determined earnings over the longer terms, um, over the longer term, the, the, the peak level of earnings power for the market in any given cycle tends to track with um, – money supply and the level of nominal GDP. It makes sense. It's like a high watermark for the economy. Um, and around that, uh, there have been some secular and some cyclical trends. Um, I think the key uh, secular trend that's helped margins here has been this mixed shift in the, in the market to uh, greater services and software uh, intensity in businesses. And those tend to be more sort of local market uh, monopolies or strong market position companies. Uh, and uh, so, so we've seen some margin expansion over the last decade that's, that's uh, helped the, the drift in earnings. Uh, I, I would say as, as we think about the year ahead, uh, and I come back to sort of some of the, the points that we've made, some of those positives have flipped to negatives. So money supply is shrinking, as we discussed. The Fed is trying to get not the pace of nominal growth down, not up. Um, against that backdrop, you know, wages are still accreting and are somewhat sticky in nature. Uh, and we're starting to see some signs of corporate confidence moderating um, payrolls and 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 job uh, openings data. While volatile, have been sort of slowing from their peaks of last year. Um, and bottom up, 
you know, we've seen various sectors uh, starting to deal with issues, whether it's in housing activity or the logistics areas or, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, some of the other uh, segments of the economy. And so, uh, you know, our, our feeling is that the um, risk to earnings is on the downside uh, as as we sort of uh, look out. Um, acknowledge, you know, while we acknowledge that the short-term momentum in the economy has been good, the fact that the high watermark level for nominal activity is coming under pressure at a time of wage inflation um, does make us worry about sort of cyclical margin squeeze. And if I go back to the point about um, corporate pricing power, uh, I think that's been helping secular margins improve. But if it's now getting to the point where it's motivating um, a regulatory counter backlash, um, you know that comes into question. And uh, there, there is uh, there's no easy way to call these things. But uh, I, I, I think that the weight of uh, things that we would look at would lead us to be a little cautious uh, with respect to where expectations are at the moment. So that's like I think we are in the same camp. Like, yeah. You know, our official view is earnings will decline based on when they get final numbers, like about $220 per share for the S&P last year. So we're down to to $210 for this year, so about a 5% decline. Mm -hmm. I think the consensus still hasn't sort of been marked to market. But I think it seems like a practical perspective on the buy side, people are kind of in that camp. There are definitely people out there who are saying like $200, $190. It's a little, I mean, it's possible, but it seems a little pessimistic. But that's kind of at the broad market level. You know, I think we're cautious on the overall performance of U.S. equities, given the valuations are still high. But it doesn't mean that there couldn't be really good opportunities beneath the surface. You know, we saw that last year, huge dispersion. So things like, you know, value versus growth, mm-hmm. we still lean towards value over growth. Um, I'd say our cyclical or sector is slightly defensive right now. We like energy um, mm-hmm. on the idea that oil is going to go up. On a global basis, you know, U.S. doesn't look that compelling versus other regions. Um, you know, part of it is a macro backdrop that feels like it's turning more favorable, and certainly in, in China and Asia, Europe to some extent. The U.S. just kind of more wide scope. So, like, where do you have higher conviction? Mm-hmm. So, just that's kind of what we're thinking of. Like, you know, but where would you say beyond the, like the high level index level for for U.S. equities, like within U.S. markets or other markets, what do you find sort of interesting right now, and what do you kind of kind of maybe shine away from a little bit? Yeah, so. Um a lot of what we're feeling is highly resonant uh, with with what you're suggesting here. Um, firstly, the rotation towards value that we saw in 2022, um, while powerful, uh, sort of barely corrects what had happened, you know, in the prior decade. Um, there'd been really a, a, a very high degree of valuation stretch between the growth and, and the value universes, and I think that makes sense intuitively. If we got to a generational low in the cost of capital, these long duration uh, growth stories were marked to very high valuations. And in an abundant liquidity environment, um, the optionality in some of these businesses uh, was being priced high. Um, it's almost like it, you know there was a, a wider implied volatility in a low cost of capital environment. You could finance unprofitable businesses for longer than you might otherwise be able to do so. So I think the, um, the, the normalization of the cost of capital here um, has been a, a strong positive for the value sector of the market. And I, I would argue that you don't necessarily need that to get worse um, uh, because over time, if we look at the 90 or so years of data prior to the last decade, uh, what we've seen on average is people tend to pay a fairly rich price uh, for growth optionality. And we know from most of options, there's time decay in pricing. And so, um, you know, and, and I think one of the things that uh, is also important to mention on value is that th- the reason um, that we uh, refer to ourselves as value investors is not because we're statistically uh, uh, price ranking um, the market. 
we look at the business first, but then we, we, we make sure that the arithmetic works. And um, that's important because we're looking at it from a margin of safety standpoint. So value as a strategy historically um, has not just been one that's had sound absolute returns, but it's, it's had a, a more modest risk profile because there's, there's less sort of compression when things go wrong. Um, what I'd also say is that um, to your point about opportunities internationally, uh, the EFER index hit a 50-plus year low relative to the S&P 500. And um, that's a combination of where currencies were and where relative valuations were. Um, the dollar hit a generational peak in real terms last year. And, and it's an- analytically you know, some of the, hard to sort of um, uh, justify that in the sense that uh, we have large current account deficits. We have much more money supply growth. Uh, we don't have a better mid-cycle fiscal picture. Uh, we sanctioned Russian access to treasury reserves, and we're seeing foreign central banks now um, doing record buying of gold. Um, so arguably what drove the dollar was interest rate differentials. If we see the slowdown that you're talking about or a recession that I fear, um, then th- that could be bad for the dollar at some point. Uh, and valuations internationally are about a third below the U.S., and uh, so you get more yield uh, in, in earnings space. And then finally, i just say, there are many great businesses that exist outside the United States um, that uh, you just can't find within the United States. So there's always an argument for some amount of diversification, but I think right now you're being paid to diversify. Yeah, with that in mind, I know we just have a couple of moments remaining today, though. Just from hearing your conversation, there is a lot here that we can follow up on. So perhaps that lends itself to a follow-up conversation a bit later this year. Though before we close out, which is focusing on asset allocation, Jason will provide our guest, Matt, with the final word. Can you speak a bit, Jason, to your preference for U.S. equities versus fixed income? It's a little bit of, you know, you have to be maybe more tactical than we would like, but think about the 10-year Treasury yield you know, our thought is that, you know, kind of range bound between like 3.4%, 3.9%. We're at 3.92 as of, I think, you know, 20 minutes ago. Hopefully it's still there. Uh, if that's the case and, you know, looks relatively attractive when we just do simple measures of valuations of U.S. equities specifically and kind of large cap and, and growth equities, they don't look particularly cheap. There used to be the terror argument. There is no alternative. Now we have actually pretty reasonable alternatives. So, you know, if you look at buying corporate America, to me, that kind of buying investment grade, higher quality, relatively safe, it's kind of relatively low risk return versus right now buying U.S. equities. It feels like there's a little bit of, you know, uh, returnless risk that you're taking on, at least at the broad market level. I think there's definitely opportunities. So this isn't a negative view on U.S. equities. We're not suggesting to sell, but more like if you have an extra dollar to, to invest right now, given the uncertain path we're going to take forward. You know, it's not bad to think about like looking into something and maybe in the safer fixed income space uh, as we kind of ride out and figure out which landing we're actually taking uh, place. And some of those dollars could also be spent abroad, as, as, as Matt sort of alluded to. Thank you, Jason. And then, Matt, the final word to you. Back to the comment before about the crystal ball being foggy. We tend to have a majority of our capital invested in equities because um, it is difficult to, to time these things. Um, but we also have uh, and and within that, uh, uh, you know, we have a, a leaning towards value and and an open mindedness to international investing. So I think very uh, consistent with the way you're thinking about it. Uh, but I think uh, given the the fatter tales that you describe at the moment, and the fact that markets are pricing a more normal environment, I, I think being willing to have a little bit of ballast uh, can make sense in this environment. It's the first time since 2007 you've got a policy rate in excess of the Fed's nominal growth uh, target. Um, and money supply shrinking. So, and if you're worried about having all of your ballast in dollar cash, uh, you know we've typically had um, 
a low double digit to low teens uh, percentage of our portfolio in gold as a potential hedge. Um, and obviously, it's had some headwinds as real interest rate expectations have gone up. But if you have a softer economy or weakness in the currency, or some of the structural risks we talked about, if they produce a lost decade in equities, um, gold is a sound potential hedge against those tail scenarios. Great. Well, Matt McLennan, Jason Dreho, I'm glad we were able to get together to have this conversation in person. Thank you very much again for spending some time with our listeners, our clients here on the How Should I Be Positioned podcast. I do look forward to having a follow-up conversation with you both. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.